0: Again, Welcome you to Bethany United Methodist Church, if you're just now joining us. <clears throat> we're glad you're choosing to worship with us this morning and uh, welcome you and invite you to come to the uh, webpage and, and uh, explore that. And you can find all kinds of information there. Uh, we're in this series on uh, the Awakened Life, spiritual awakening, talking about the, the foundations. So we've talked about the Word, we've, we've talked about Spirit. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the body of Christ And I'm going to remind you that uh, one of the the primary obstacles uh, to spiritual awakening is that we already think we are awake. And so uh, to keep us from uh, slipping into that place of thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm already awake and I've got this and whatever, when in fact we're sleepwalking, I'm just going to have you uh, repeat this again with me this morning. Uh, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sun that's out this morning that wakes us up uh, physically and we just ask that you come and let your spirit rest on us and wake us up in spirit and heart and mind to hear what you want to share with us. Uh, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning we're going to go with our brother Ezekiel into the 47th chapter, uh, The Vision of the River. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was coming down under the south side of the temple temple south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand. He measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. This is the word of the Lord. It's true and can be trusted. This, this passage out of Ezekiel, we're going we're to move more into it next week as we begin to talk about the kingdom of God. But I want to stop at this point uh, this morning because I want to talk about this river, the, the river that comes out of the temple, this river of life that God is pouring forward. Uh, what God is trying to communicate to his people in this time is, is that God's life is not confined to the temple. But, brother, it flows from the temple. And you notice as it, as it moves out further and further, it becomes mightier and mightier. So that by the time you're, you're 4,000 cubits out, oh, I guess that's about two, three miles, something like that. Uh, it's become this massive river. And God wants us to understand that as this pours forth, the, the life of God pours forth, it becomes mightier and mightier. The early church understood this to be a reference to the power of God's moving in the world, the movement of God's Spirit, but also to the body of Christ itself, the people of God. That no longer was God confined to the location of the temple, but rather that God dwelt wherever God's people were. And that as you moved out from the temple, indeed, the people became more numerous, and so the river became mightier. And this image became a powerful image for uh, the people of God in that time. It still holds a powerful image, and we'll see where it goes uh, next week as he continues on. But it reminds us that, that, that the image of God in Scripture that God brings to us is that the life of God is bound up in the movement of the people of God, where the people of God go, and, and God goes with them in this mighty river of life that gets poured out. You see this reinforced as you come in the New Testament. Uh, early, this is... This is Very early in uh, Jesus' ministry, uh, after John is put in prison, uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. And the word there literally means you can reach out and touch it, it's that close. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting the net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people." At once they left their nets and followed him. The the, the first act he does after he announces that the kingdom of God has come near is he begins to gather the disciples. Uh, the, The river is already gathering together and becoming greater. A, a greater stream. E- even from the beginning uh, there's this understanding that, that the, the faith, the Judeo-Christian faith is not something that you do on your own but that you do in community. And it becomes fullest when it is in community. And so Jesus begins this ministry calling them. And in fact there's a whole sermon built out of this around the idea of you know, the kingdom of God has come near. And, and when people would ask, well where is that kingdom? Jesus would then point to the disciples as the first sign of it. Uh, of the indwelling of this kingdom, and you see this continuing on as you move into the Acts of the Apostles and the the beginning of the church. You know, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The church had gathered. Suddenly, a, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Spirit is is not poured out upon them. One by one by one it 's poured out upon them as they 're gathered it 's poured out on them as the body of Christ. Uh, there is this theme that runs through scripture that, that we 're called we 're called as a people that that the Christian faith, the Christian life, is a communal thing Now Now I know right now we 're kind of scattered all over the place and we 're not able to come together in this room like we normally would, but we 're still connected uh, through the spirit of God, even though we are in different places because the Spirit of God does not recognize distance and space. Uh, the Spirit of God holds us together as the community of faith. And this is part of the reality. I mean, even in the early church when we, they were beginning, the, the, the hermits, the, the solitaries, as they were called, of the early church were required to be connected with a worshiping body. They were never simply isolated. They were always in communion in one way or another because we need to be in this body connected together. Come together, brought together, held together. Because as as much as we understand ourselves to be the body of Christ, we also know that that when we are on our own, uh, we're, we're vulnerable. And we have this tendency, if we're not careful, to begin to try to replace God with ourselves, in our lives. Indeed, that's the, the, the story out of Genesis that we're so familiar with, Genesis 3, uh, where, where Adam and Eve are in the garden, and, and they've gone there, and, and they've seen the tree, and it looks good, and the serpent is tempting, tempting them, and the serpent says, You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it. You will be like God. That, that's the temptation over and over. You know, if you'll just do this, you'll be like God. Whether it's in the Garden of Eden or or whether it's the Tower of Babel, we'll build this tower up to the heavens and we will make a name for ourselves. We won't have to be God's people. We'll make our own name. Uh, All through Scripture, you see it over and over again when the people of God decide that, oh, we can do this on our own. We can be like God ourselves. There is this drastic event that occurs where as they lift themselves up, at some point they reach this point where God brings them back down. I and mean, the story of the, of the people of God is that every time we try to, to exalt ourselves, we are brought low. I mean, we have an old saying, right? Pride comes before the fall. I mean, this, is, this is who we are. This is part of our brokenness. It goes all the way back to Genesis. It weaves itself through Scripture. And the, the flip story to that, the other side of the story of that, is, is demonstrated in Christ Himself And we hear this wonderful psalm out of Philippians that Paul shares with us, Uh, you know, in in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus flips that pattern upside down and humbles himself. And in his humbling of himself, even to death on a cross, then God exalts him. Now, now, you would think that uh, knowing this at this point in time and knowing who Jesus is, we'd be able to do that and we'd we'd have it down. You know, we know. Okay, so don't take pride, but rather you know, humble yourself. But the truth of the matter is, and and let's be honest, we still struggle with this uh, on a regular basis. I mean, Paul just bluntly admits it in Romans and seventh. He has this long uh, monologue, but the, this is the key line. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting somebody, one of, my, one of my singers is giving me an amen in here. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, for me, probably the best definition of what it means to discover yourself in sin. Discover your brokenness and be honest about it. We, we continue to struggle with that. We continue to wrestle with that. Part of why we need the body of Christ is we need someone around us. We need others around us who can hold that mirror up and say, this is who you are. We, we need our brothers and sisters to hold us accountable, to support us, to encourage us, to come alongside of us, and, and to make us to understand that, you know, we're, we can't just take God's place, that, that the body of Christ made up of all of us, with all of our different gifts, it takes all of us coming together in honesty and and humbling ourselves before we can begin to be the body of Christ to reflect God's love on the face of this earth. I mean, Paul's going to remind us. Uh, I mean, this is actually Philip, uh, Philip Yancey, Kenneth Collins quoting Philip Yancey. I love this. But by, by instinct, I feel I must do something in order to be accepted. I have to. I have to somehow make this happen. Indeed, just as in Wesley's own day, so many people today struggle in the ungrace of thinking that they must do or be something first in order to be forgiven, an approach that is actually the last gasp of the sinful self to micromanage its own life, its vain attempt to bring about redemption. Now, I just want you to hear that last line and say, does this sound like me? The last gasp of the sinful self to micromanage its own life, its vain attempt To bring about redemption, I, I have the feeling, and I don't know this for sure, but I have the feeling that there's probably a number of you out there going, "Oh, that's yeah, okay, maybe, maybe I am there." Uh, Instead of relying on God to do this, maybe I'm I'm trying to do this for myself. Paul reminds us, you know, we're we're brought together in this body to support each other, to, to hold each other up. I urge you. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, notice, as a living sacrifice. In other words, this is your life you're offering. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then... You will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then he goes on to remind us for the by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And then he, he goes on to remind us that different ones of us receive different gifts, that, that we're all only part of the story to the church in Corinth who was arguing and fighting and fussing over whose gifts were great or well, greatest he would remind them uh, just as a body though one has many parts but all its many parts form one body so it is with Christ for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles slave or free and we were all given the one spirit to drink even so the body is not made up of one part but of many so this understanding of the body being put together and pieced together and, and brought together from different parts was something that, that our, uh, the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, understood so well. So, so as he went through and he preached and, and people came into relationship with Christ, he brought them together in groups, gathered them up where they could hold each other accountable, where they could support each other, where they could bring each other into that place of hum- humble obedience to God. And the holy love of God. And that was the power of the Methodist movement. In his time, one of the great preachers, uh, evangelical preachers, was a gentleman by the name of George Whitfield. And this is a story uh, that one of the uh, early Methodist pastors, uh, Adam Clark, recalls about a conversation between George Whitfield, the evangelist, and John Poole. And John Poole was a local preacher, a lay preacher. Uh, Whitfield said, well, John, art thou still a Wesleyan? I think that they really did talk like that back then. Uh, And Poole said, yes, sir. I thank God I have the privilege of being in connection with Mr. Wesley and one of his preachers. And then Whitfield replied, John, thou art in the right place. My brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined in class and thus preserved the fruits of his labor. This I neglected and my people are a rope of sand. When we think that somehow or another we can go it alone, we've set ourselves up for failure. Because when we try to go it alone, it is so easy to begin to say, oh, I can just do this, and I can can do this on my own. I can manage this on my own. I can be like God. But when we are in community, we're constantly reminded, we're constantly reminded of the others around us and by the others around us that we are only what we are and that our life is to be this humble obedience modeling the love that God has shown us, the love that God has shown to us. In the end of John's gospel, Jesus begins to lift up prayer and teaching to his disciples. And he has this little piece of teaching he gives them about what it means to love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. I I no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I made known to you. This commandment to, to enter into to love, this is, this is the mark. Not not love as a, a affection, not love as warm, fuzzy feeling, not warm uh, just emotion, but but this powerful kind of love that that is a holy love of obedience and self-sacrifice. This is a different kind of love. This is what we talked about last week when we talked about the love of God, which is so vast and goes beyond our understanding that is poured into us. But then God calls us to pour out with each other a, a holy love that is of great power. And it's this love that, that molds us in relationship into the body of Christ and makes us one. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays for us. My prayer is not for them, the disciples that were present alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that that inviting into the love of the Holy Trinity that we talked about last week. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I have loved them, even as you've loved me. It's that being united in, in God's holy love that is the sign to the world of who we are. Now, now too often in the church, we, we tend to forget that all of this, all this ties back to, to being in this relationship with Christ. And so I like to use this wheel this kind of image uh, that, that reminds us, you know, the, what, what makes a wheel, what holds it together is the hub. That's what's what makes it hold together. Everything comes back to the hub. And the hub for us as the body of Christ is the person of Jesus Christ and, and his love, this holy love that's poured out upon us. As we enter into that holy love that Christ has given us and then share it with one another, that's what defines us in the body of Christ. It's called relational discipleship coming together in this, this holy love. Not, not just in emotion and affection, but in this holy love that includes obedience, includes submission, includes humility. And, and, and without the hub, the wheel has no strength. Without the hub, the wheel falls apart. And it doesn't matter how much we talk about unity, and it doesn't ha- matter how much our structure defines it, and it doesn't ha- matter how much we legislate it or, or talk about it or whatever. W- w- without that connection with Christ... It falls apart. And the world sees that for what it is. My friend J.D. Walt has made a couple of comments around this. I want to share these with you um, as we talk here. Uh, The only meaningful witness to the world, the witness that will convince the world that Jesus is the Christ, is the character and quality of relationship among His followers. Now, I want you to hear that this sounds very similar, right? The world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That that there's a similar reflection. The the witness to the world is is that the holy love of Christ is poured into us and then we share that with one another. When When the world sees us not loving each other in this way, the world sees our hypocrisy for what it is. The issue is not loving on strangers it is living in real loving relationships within the body of Christ. It's, it's holding to that holy love that binds us together and that brings us in humility into the presence of Christ. The nature of Christ must be found at the micro level or it will never be found at the micro level. I'm always reminded of uh, Alfred North Whitehead's wonderful saying, uh, you know, the love of mankind is mitigated by my violent dislike of the man who lives next door. Uh, th- this sense of, you know, it's, it's real easy to love people in the abstract. It's hard to love them in concrete. And, and, and what we're reminded is that, that it's, it's only when we love them in concrete, when we love them at this micro level, one-to-one, that actually all of our talk about loving people makes any sense to the world. The church is the abiding fellowship the people of God have and exhibit through the Holy Spirit with each other. It's the abiding fellowship we have, but it goes through the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ with us. There's this understanding that the the body of Christ is this place where, where God is choosing to work out his purposes, where the river of life flows out, and it's defined by these relationships we hold with one another in the holy love of Christ. Not Not simply by being together, not simply by organizing, not simply by deciding to do this, but but when we as people are humbly giving ourselves over to Christ and allowing god 's holy love to work through us for wesley the the, the place that really hit the ground, if you will, was in the small groups, in the classes and societies and in the bands. And and, and, and he brought them together so that people would be in relationship with one another and, and build each other up in that relationship and in that love and strengthen each other in their discipleship. Uh, and and that's a concept that kind of got lost for a while in the history of our denomination, but that we're kind of bringing back to reality, and many of you in this church already are in small groups and participating in that. But I want you to, to hear uh, Dr. David Thomas talking about the power of being in one of those small groups, the, the smallest of them, which is called a band, um, whereas classes uh, tend to be uh, larger groups and they're, they're really groups that come together and inquire about, you know, how is your soul? How is your soul prospering? The band is a, is a smaller group that drills even more deeply down into those questions. And, and I want you to hear about how Dr. Thomas talks about the healing power of these groups, especially in this time. We are
1: created by God. We are constituted in the deepest way, deepest places, to crave this, to actually need it. We've seen this, you know, during the COVID crisis. There's been so much isolation and people have deteriorated. We have just had the most vivid laboratory experience of the need for banding over these last few months, if we've, as we've watched so much deterioration of people in isolation. We're, we're, and a crowd does not meet that need. It does not touch us there. It's so easy just to be nothing more than just a consumer or a spectator in a crowd. It's not what we crave. And so banding is the invitation into a, a quality of relationship that is trusted, safe, empathic, Honest enough for the Spirit of God, the love of God to actually change us. Mm -hmm. Our hurts, our bad habits, the things that we desire to change, those are often relationally sourced. The wounds of our lives have come out of relationship and relational wounds. We'll only be relationally healed. We'll never go off somewhere and journal that out or read books and get that fixed. That works out somehow. I think God's created us this way to need to feel like I am loved by you as much as I am known by you. You really know me and you still are with me. That is transformative in the human heart. When we feel as, as, as known as we are loved, And that happens in banded discipleship.
0: So as he talks about that, I want to remind you that Banded discipleship is talking about being in these very small groups, and they're fairly intense. Uh, if you've been in a grow group or a class kind of meeting or an Mayors reunion group, you've, you've asked questions about the state of your soul. But I want to remind you, when you come in and talk about bands, uh, these are the questions that Wesley originally assigned the bands to ask of each other. Uh, what known sins have you committed since our last meeting? Now, I don't know about you, but these step all over my toes. So I, I'm, I'm, if you're uncomfortable, I'm with you. What temptations have you met with? How were you delivered? What have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? And I love this. Have you nothing you desire to keep secret? Now, I'm going to confess to you the first time I read this list of questions, I was distinctly uncomfortable with them. Uh, But my experience with them over the years has taught me that, that it depends on where they're asked and who is asking them. And that's why the body of Christ is so important, for this holy love to be present in it. To have someone ask these questions of you that you don't trust or you don't think is safe or you don't think is asking them out of love is probably going to be very frightening and threatening. And I, I can tell you that when they're asking love, it makes all the difference. I first experienced this back in the late 80s in a, a small group in Corpus Christi that my uh, my saint uh, Jake Reynolds called together. Now Jake was about four decades older than me at that time, and and Jake called a group of us together, and most of us were three or four decades younger than Jake was. And and, and Jake called us and asked us, "Let's let's do this. Let's do this." And uh, I'm not sure if it'd been anybody but Jake that I would have agreed at that point to do that. But Jake called it together, and I and I can still see Jake leaning across the table and and looking into your eyes with, with love and compassion and warmth, asking you, have you nothing you desire to keep secret? And there was something so affirming, there was something of holy love so present in him that I could trust him to answer that question. And it was in those conversations that Jake allowed me to realize all, all the places in my life where I was still kind of having a dalliance with sin. You know, the, the pieces and the places in my life where I was still kind of saying, well, you know, I can still do a little of this. Or I can still do a little of that. It, it's not that big a deal. And Jake allowed me to see the deception I was living in, and the ways in which I was not leaning into the holy love of God. There's a a power in this that comes out. And, And when we are in those kinds of conversations and safe places with those that we know are filled with the holy love of God, then the river of life begins to flow through us in the way God intended begins to flow through us in the way God intended. So I want to invite you this morning to think of of the body of Christ. Now, we're going to talk about the kingdom of God next week, but I want to invite you to think of the the body of Christ, this banded discipleship, this relational discipleship, where we we come together as the people of God to to hold each other accountable, to help us humble ourselves in the way we need to in the presence of God so that God might lift us up. To come together and, and offer ourselves up in humility, in obedience, and in love, to allow God's holy love to begin transforming us into the people we want to be. I want to invite you to consider, if you're not in a a small group, to consider whether that's a place you need to be. And if so, if you would reach out to us, we will happy to direct you. There's a, a group finder on the website that you can use to find existing groups or Or maybe you need to call together a new group to come together. And God created us to be in these relationships. God gave us the body of Christ as as this body which is connected to Christ and Christ's holy love. But then is also called to extend that holy love to each other. That God might be working in the midst of us to transform us from one glory to the next in his holy love. And that takes place within these sacred relationships. So I want to invite you to consider as part of the body of Christ entering into that process and allowing the river of life pouring forth from God in holy love to begin to change your life. I want to invite you at this time also to enter in with me to the Sower's Creed And as we do this each week and repeat this, uh, I want to invite you to listen and and see if, if pieces of it are beginning to sound different to you or you're beginning to understand more what is being said within this creed. I invite you to join with me. Today, I sow for a great awakening. Today, I stake everything on the promise of the Word of God. I depend entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit. I have the same mind in me That was in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is good news and Jesus is in me. I am good news. Today I will sow the extravagance of the gospel everywhere I go. And into everyone I meet. Today I will love others as Jesus has loved me. Today I will remember that the tiniest seeds become the tallest trees. That the seeds sown today become the shade of tomorrow. That the faith of right now becomes the future of the everlasting kingdom. Today, I sow for a great awakening. Amen. Now, I want to pray a prayer over you uh, out of Ephesians 1. And I'm going to invite you, if you'll just hold your hands out to receive this prayer. And, And let me pray this blessing that Paul offers up to the church of Ephesus. I keep asking,